This is episode 95 of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast, and I'm your host, John S. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Bruce H. from the Mini Paths Group in Seattle, Washington. Bruce has been sober for over 40 years and recently was a keynote speaker at the Widening the Gateway Conference in Tacoma. In this episode, we'll talk about what it was like when he was getting sober in the 1970s and the changes he's seen in AA since that time. We'll also discuss his journey through sobriety, what he's learned, how he approaches the program, and how he has always made a home for himself in Alcoholics Anonymous. How you doing, Bruce? I'm doing great. Thank you yeah. so much for taking the time to uh, spend with me and the listeners of our podcast. I'm thrilled and flattered to be a part of it, so thank you for asking. Well, I really enjoyed your talk in Tacoma, and um, reading through the transcript, there were a lot of things that came up that I wanted to kind of get into a little bit more detail. And just to go right from the beginning, if you don't mind, um, there was some, when you started your talk, um, you were introducing yourself, you know, and we always customarily introduce ourselves as I'm John and I'm an alcoholic. And um, you did something a little bit different. And then you wanted to talk about identity. Um, this has actually come up in our meetings here locally too. Uh, the question of identity. Um, so can you go into maybe a little bit more detail about what you've been thinking about lately when it comes to identity? Well, I've been thinking about it because it it's become for me like saying, I'm Bruce, I'm an alcoholic is like, a rote thing. It's like I say it without thinking about it even. And it strikes me as a pretty one-dimensional thing. I did a lot of drugs too. So I identify equally as much as an addict, as an alcoholic, but it really was in AA that I found fellowship and I found a home. I got sober in Minneapolis in 1975. I was 20 years old and I, I was in a treatment center. And, uh, one of the buzzwords that, or not buzzwords, but identity words that was, it was controversial then was coming out of the treatment centers, often people would refer to themselves, would say, I'm, I would say, I'm Bruce and I'm chemically dependent. And that was okay in some meetings. And then there were other meetings where they said, you know, no, that's not okay. If you don't say you're an alcoholic, you, you can't be here, you know, almost that literally. And it is it's interesting. I About six months ago, I met a woman here in Seattle who got sober in Minneapolis in the early 80s, and she did not get go through a treatment center. She got sober in AA, and she was talking about how she and her sponsor would go to these meetings that were mostly men, and they were, they, they were very, you know, by the book, shall we say, very, you know, fundamentalist. And it reminded me of how... There really were these two cultures in AA in Minneapolis back then. Minneapolis was a leader in the treatment center place, you know, Hazelden in particular. Uh, I did not go through Hazelden. I went through a similar program at a place called St. Mary's Hospital that's, I don't think, any long. It's got some other name now. But there was that real tension between people coming out of the treatment centers and people in traditional AA. And I actually think, for me, 
I was very fortunate to have landed in that environment, in that place, because if I had just landed in what we call traditional AA, you know, I don't think I would have stuck around. I found within the meetings that I went to, first of all, there were, there were lots of young people getting sober and staying sober at that time. And it was really, from the first meeting I went to, I wanted what I saw the people in the meeting having. And it wasn't so much like I wanted to be clean and sober, but I saw that they had things in their lives that I just hadn't experienced. And I saw like a life in their eyes and they were happy to see each other and they would hug and all this. And it was like, it was weird in one respect, but it was also like, I guess looking back now, I I recognize there's really something that's authentic here that I want in my life. And I kept coming back and I did connect my alcohol and drug use and all that. I I never had to drink or use again uh, since then. So... I remember um, I got sober in 88, and I remember at that time, in Kansas City anyway, there was some tension um, in the meetings between people who identified as addicts and people who identified as alcoholics. And, I mean, you would actually hear people who, you know, got sober like in the 50s and the 60s or whatever, you know, telling people, N.A. is down the street and stuff like that, you know. But But what I noticed, though, is like that kind of subsided after a while. Maybe those old timers kind of got over it or something happened, but it just kind of stopped being an issue until a few years ago when all of a sudden um, groups started reading this card because they wanted to have, oh, I don't know what they call it. Uh, what do they call it? Your primary purpose or whatever. S- singleness yeah, of purpose. Singleness of yeah. purpose card. Yeah. So they started reading that card and they started giving people a hard time about, about how they identified in meetings. And the whole thing is kind of stupid because – when we say my name is so and so and I'm an alcoholic or whatever, we're not even required to do that. That's just like a custom. I don't even know really what the origins of it are. You know, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And almost anybody I know who's had problems with other drugs realizes that part of their recovery is to not drink as well. Kind of yeah. becomes a moot point. Now, most people come in with. You know, having used multiple, used and abused multiple substances. And, uh, yeah, and we would be limiting ourselves. I mean, if, if the whole idea is that, you know, we help ourselves through helping others, then we're not going to be helping ourselves very well if we're, if we're turning our backs on people that just happen to use other drugs besides alcohol. But you know what I was thinking about when you were talking about identity <clears throat> during your talk? As I have met over the last couple of years at our, we agnostics group, um, and it's usually among, you know, people in their 20s or so, um, sometimes a reluctance to put a label on themselves as an alcoholic, like, you know, that's not really who I am. They see this as, you know, I'm a, I'm a person, and I just happen to have a problem. I want to enable myself to take care of that problem. So for a while, when we had a couple of people like that in our group, I was trying my best to break the habit of saying I'm an alcoholic. And I'd say something like, I'm a person in long-term recovery, and um, I don't know. So I, it was just hard for yeah. me to do because I spent so many years just <laughs> saying the. Episode. I know. I, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And 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 referring back to my talk in Tacoma, I started out by saying, "Hey, I want to do something I've never done before." Yeah. <laughs> and so I introduced myself. I said, "I'm Bruce. I'm a person with a substance use disorder." And it's like I I do think I also. Would say I'm, you know, I'm a person 
with a disability. I, I have an incomplete spinal cord injury from a skiing accident in 2001. And so I've, I've experienced firsthand that whole thing, the whole identity around disability, as well as around you know, alcoholism and addiction. And I really do think labels matter. And they also, you know, increasingly in our, in our culture of, well, sometimes we just, we easily just dismiss people based on a label and that, you know, I don't like that. Right, right. I don't like experiencing it and I don't like seeing it when I see it happen. Probably some of, still a lot of it just is invisible, yeah, and I'm learning so much now, too, um, because of the people I meet in my home group that, you know, identity, how, how a person sees themselves is really important, and people have to have the freedom to kind of label themselves or identify themselves and, and not be put in boxes, um, you know, um, and that, that, that encompasses everything from um, how we identify our gender to, um, you know, sexuality and yep. I mean, everything. Yeah, um, so, yeah. It's it's really interesting, but I I love being um, having my mind opened and understanding these things. So you know that's that's one benefit I guess of being around an eclectic group of people in our meetings. Yeah. But you mentioned too, and you just you talked about it a little bit here about you know the woman you met who got sober in Minneapolis in the eighties, and you got sober in the seventies, nineteen seventy five. And there's a difference. And I have heard this from others who got sober in the 70s. Uh, Joe C., for example, um, I think he got, well, he got sober in Canada in the 70s. And he would, he would comment that when he went to meetings, he would never see the big book anywhere, that the book that everybody liked at the time was Living Sober. Uh, mm-hmm. John L., who got sober in the 70s in New York, um, would talk about how, you know, um, what was really fo- what people would really focus on was the staying away from a drink one day at a time. And it wasn't so much this rigid orthodoxy of having a sponsor that goes through the steps. Did you notice any change like that? Was that your experience in the 70s? Do you see any great difference, at least from your experience from getting sober and experiencing Alcoholics Anonymous in the 1970s, as opposed to the 80s and then going forward? I think I've seen some similar similar things in that yeah i do remember living sober being more important i did i did get a copy of the big book when i was in treatment i didn't read much of it um i read i mean i I guess over the years i've read you know maybe most of it but i don't think all of it did you look at it and just just think wow this is an old book (laughs) yeah yeah i did actually it was like the language seemed archaic back then and some of it was just you know yeah. Uh, and Living Sober was just out, off, hot off the press at the time. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So there wasn't, yeah, that emphasis on the big book, you know, the, the notion of, you know, you know, I got, a, you know, the tough sponsor, mm-hmm. this mythos of the sponsor, you know, coming and saying, you're going to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. <laughs> and you're going to, we're going to work the steps, you know, one step a week and da da da, and this and that, and, you know, everything regimented. We're going to do the four step by the big book or <laughs> it's not, yeah. it's not going to work. And, you know, I pretty much never did any of that no. and stayed sober. I, I, I never went to 90 meetings in 90 days. I think maybe one time there was a week when I went to six meetings in a week, you know, I didn't need to. Yeah. And 
I I still stayed sober. That's the point. So, and I think uh, too, I the whole your... idea about getting sober is so that you can go out into the world and do things. Um, I actually did that. Um, <clears throat> I went back to school as an adult because I always kind of regretted never finishing my education, which was interrupted by my drinking. <laughs> so uh-huh. I went back yeah. to school, and when I was doing that, <clears throat> I wasn't going to very many meetings. Because I was busy reading and studying and meeting people, and I was okay with that because I was like, you know, this is why I got sober, so I yeah. can, so I can do this. And then after I finished school, I was able sure. to do some other things. But yeah. But back to your back to your question about AA in the seventies versus now. It, it's a it's a little hard. I've moved a few times, especially I guess really in the, the first ten years of my sobriety. So I I lived in Minnesota in Minneapolis and then in Duluth and things were you know, pretty similar. And as I described, I'd find meetings that worked and were, you know, I was happy to be a part of and weren't overly talking about God or the big book or any of that. And then, and then about five years sober, I moved to Salt Lake city and it was just night and day. Part of it was just, there were, there, yeah, I was, I was there. I'm looking around, like, is there anybody here under 40 who's sober? And I was, you know, I was 25 at the time. And it was like, oh, not really. <laughs> and I think that's really when I also started, you know, going to meetings where how it works was read at the mm. beginning all the time. Um, was that not which, happening in uh, uh, Minneapolis? It was, as I recall, it was off and on, but not that often. Wow. It just... I don't remember, and then and but I get there, and it's like I'm hearing this, and you know, it, to me, right out of the gate, it's you know, yeah. rarely have we seen a person fail. You know, it's ableist, and you know, if yeah. you can't, if it doesn't work for you, there's something wrong with you. Uh-huh. And I've seen, you know, over the years, I've seen people of all stripes, all whatever, you know get sober and stay sober and that includes people you know who are you know doing it literally you know by the book or at least by what they think the book is and those that have nothing to do with it and so it's really hard to predict but but back to salt lake city yeah it was really it was really very different and that was also where i also experienced people going to AA meetings and not drinking, but continuing to use drugs, which just I had not really seen in Minnesota because people were more aware that, okay, you know, people would say, you know, a drug is a drug is a drug. Right. Isn't that interesting? And um, alcohol is just another drug. And so that was interesting. I, I had a friend there who... Uh, I mean, I didn't know it when I first met him, but he spent about two years you know, going to meetings, but still smoking pot. And finally, one day he went to a meeting and said, well, I've quit doing all this other stuff. And it was interesting to see him like actually, you know, he was like always on the margins and always in trouble and whatever and struggling and but still coming back. And finally, like he quit doing that and he finally got some traction and... You know, actually started to really, you know, how much he worked the program, I don't remember. But he started, you know, to live the benefits of being clean and sober. Well, I know that science um, sees the 
you know, how these drugs um, affect our brains um, the same, whether it be alcohol or, you know, any drug, you know, it's right. doing the same thing to our brains anyway. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of a drawback from AA. If, if, if the only drug we're concerned about is alcohol, well, technically, then you're free to go do whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah. you want to do. <laughs> right, right. So you started yeah. a young people's meeting in Salt Lake City. And I kind of like how you were talking about, you know, we have to create our own community within AA. And so you were going through this period of time in Salt Lake City where you're looking around. There aren't any people like you. So you decided to create your own community. And you want to talk about that a little bit, about what it was like getting a young person's meeting going? Yeah, well, it, I didn't actually start that process with trying to start a young people's meeting. But I, after I'd lived there maybe a year, I went back to Minneapolis and St. Paul. And that year, I think it was 1981, the ICIPA Conference, International Conference of Young People NAA, was in St. Paul. And as it turned out, a friend of mine was one of the co-chairs. And so I, w I went to this conference not really knowing what to expect and was just like blown away by it, just how powerful it was to have a few thousand young people sober together in one place. Uh, celebrating that in all the ways that we celebrate. Uh, and I just remember sitting, I, I even have this this memory of sitting in the hotel by the pool, looking around at all this and going, wow, it would be so cool to have this in Salt Lake City. I mean, it would just be, it would be amazing. And so I went back and I started going to meetings and talking about Ikipa and people would, sort of look at me like, oh, okay, <laughs> whatever. I don't know what you're really saying, but, uh, but I did start meeting some other people who were young, who were, you know, either a bit of time or some time and were experiencing some of the same things I was. And so we started, I, I remember trying to start a couple young people's meetings and There'd be like two of us and a pot of coffee sitting there, and it 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 took it took some time to get uh, some traction. And really, the thing that s started taking off is a group of us got together and we decided, well, let's let's start our own young people's conference. And so we did that, and we started the Utah Conference of Young People in AA, which is still going on. Yeah, and then out of that we started a Ikipa bid committee. So the first, the first Utah conference was in 1984, and I went to the Ikipa in 1984, and I was the only person there from Utah. And in 1985, it was in Denver, and we chartered a bus and filled it full of people, and we went to Denver and we put in a bid for Ikipa, and that was that was the turning point because the people that were on that bus came back and we were like just on fire yeah. we just had this you know really powerful experience and this was also like that conference was like two weeks before i moved up here to seattle and i just remember thinking well okay i got this thing started but now it's having a life of its own and it it carried on. They continued to bid for Ikipa and got the bid in 1989, and that was it was amazing. And now I go there, and I I have a brother who lives there, 
mm-hmm. I go there and I get to meeting some meetings and they're 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 young people sober all over the place and now they have not just you know one conference for the state but like the cities Salt Lake and Provo and Ogden and the various areas have their own young people's groups or you know their own WIPA groups mm-hmm. and they're getting together and they're bidding on the bidding on conferences and whatever it's just it's really it's really cool to see that's good i that it's i think it's cool that we can do that that we can um all we have to do is go you know meet other people like ours start hanging out together over a cup of coffee next thing you know you've got you got something going like that you mentioned in your conversation right then and there that about your brother and you talked about this also in your talk that i don't know if this is the same brother who got into recovery that well actually i I have two brothers and both both are in recovery but this brother this brother was the first one and the one that i probably talked the most about okay and that and you (sighs) mentioned that when he started getting sober that it really kind of triggered for you like um other memories from your your experience growing up in the family and I don't know if you're comfortable talking about it. I, ha- oh. I have a brother who was in the program for a while, and we had like two different experiences. He's not doing so great right now. But um, I don't know. Would you like to talk a little bit about how that impacted you, having your siblings get into the re- in- into the program? And yeah. you know, are there any drawbacks sure. and benefits to having a, a, a you know sharing your <laughs> AA experience with a family member? <laughs> well, I guess yeah. I I can't say that I really experienced many drawbacks mm-hmm. to it. Having them in recovery, it was more. <laughs> the drawbacks it's it's hard to have a close family member out there practicing yeah. and when my brother Keith was practicing i i finally came to a realization hey i i should go to some al-anon meetings mm. and i i did and i started going regularly for some years even a bit after he got sober but it but it really helped me sort out like what's my stuff and what's not. Yeah, it it was really hard to watch him uh, go through that and really, you know, not be able to talk about that with him. But yeah, when he he did finally have something happen that his employer said either you go to treatment now or you're fired. Mm-hmm. And he did go to a treatment center and uh, got sober and stayed sober. I don't think today he goes to many AA meetings, but he, you know, he's he is sober and you know has found a way, you know, a way in the world. But it really was interesting to me. I thought I they did as part of his treatment have a family week, so we did have uh, some of the family from Minneapolis, and I can't. I was living in Seattle at the time, so I flew down to Salt Lake to be a part of that. And I thought, well, I, I think I was 12 or 13 years sober. I thought, well, I'm, you know, I have trying to impart this wisdom or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was like, no, that just isn't how it works. And the counselor who was leading the family groups there would ask family members, are you willing to accept the gift that your family member is bringing to you? And she'd ask that question, and people would think, well, the gift is that they are going to get sober, mm-hmm. right? Right. That's sort of what, what he might say. Well, no, she was asking, this person's bringing you a gift. I mean, you are affected by 
alcoholism and addiction just as much as they are. And so she was asking that question, you know, are you willing to take on Mm -hmm. some of your own work? Mm -hmm. And that question just really went right under my skin and right in. And it really was like I had, I had this closet with stuff in it that, you know, I had just shut the door on and sealed it up and it was just, it was there. And that question like, uh, cracked that door open where I started to be able to see and remember things that had happened. And from like, from my viewpoint, like, okay, that happened. And now what really was my part in it? And how is that affecting me today? And it was really amazing. Well, one of the things that happened when I, when I got there, my, my dad and my brother were in the middle. I was, I was, a little late from the start of it and they were in the middle of doing some work with this counselor in this group setting and they they were set up sitting in two chairs facing each other and the counselor was on the side like a coach shall we say and then the people the i think there were five families that were there in part of this group were watching and they started going back to work and it was just like i saw myself sitting in each one of those chairs i saw part the parts of myself for my dad, the parts of myself for my brother. And it was just like somebody punched me in the face or something. Yeah. It was it was amazing. But I, I also came out of it still, like particularly with my father, I was incredibly angry with him. And all this started coming out. And after that, it seemed like for some months, I would... I would go to a step meeting and it would always be on step eight. <laughs> Are you willing to make amends? And I just think, you know, you know, I'll be goddamned if I'm going to make amends to that son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. I think that. And then I would next think, you know, I'm carrying around this poison, but I'm still carrying it around. I don't want to let go of it. But I knew that I was going to have to find a way to let go of that and over time I did find a way to get through that and it was maybe two or three years later I remember being in Minneapolis visiting my dad and we were sitting out on uh, the deck of his house that overlooks the lake in suburban Minneapolis a beautiful setting it was a beautiful sunny summer day and we started talking about things that had happened with our family you know my mother had died of cancer about a year before I got sober, which was a big complication. She had it for 10 years. When she first got it, she was given three months to live. It was a very traumatic thing for all of us. And her having the cancer and especially her passing away when she did, after she, she died, I just went right off the cliff. And uh, But we were talking about all that stuff, and we never had before. And then my dad said something. He said, I could never imagine having had a conversation like this with my father. And like almost in front of my eyes, he turned into like a five-year-old boy. And it was like our relationship changed dramatically in that moment. And I was able to see him as just another man among men. And uh, that was really, that was for me you know, like living the ninth step. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I loved that story when you were, when you were sharing that in, in Tacoma. Um, I don't know if I actually ever had a conversation like that with my father. 
um, he, you know, it's really difficult to speak with, um, you know, men from that generation. And he, you know, he was born in 1935. And so, and he was an army guy, tough. And he was just one of these people that just felt like, you know, I don't want to talk about, you know, the bad stuff, you know? So I just kind of with him, um, kind of changed my behavior. And I think over time, you know, we, we got closer. I was just try, I just tried to be there for him. But I think that conversation you had with your dad was amazing and is just what we need. You know, I can't remember who it was, but I had a podcast with someone and we were talking about how there's sometimes a misconception that when there's a death in the family, it brings a family together. But in reality, it really tears a family apart. And that was rang true for me. I had that experience. I was um, 21 when my mother died and our family just fell apart. You know, um, I went off drinking. My father went off doing his thing. We all just fell apart. Yeah. And it's a very difficult, painful time. And it sounds to me like, you know, through the process of your brother's recovery and learning, you know, m- becoming aware of what was going on, that you were finally, you know, able to have that moment of healing with your father. And that's really cool. Yeah, and I'm a, I'm, yeah, it is. I'm especially grateful for now. He's, he's still alive. He's 89, but he's in late stage Parkinson's mm-hmm. disease now. And so he's, mentally not very present but i just i feel i do feel really fortunate to have had had that and then been able to have a relationship i mean yeah we still there were still things that we didn't see eye to eye on and all that but we could we just had a different perspective after that for sure well um you were talking also about when you reached 40 years of sobriety you started asking yourself why you go to AA to begin? <laughs> why you go yeah. to AA? And, you know, yeah. I, I, I'm just, I'm coming up on 30 years and I kind of ask myself that sometimes too. Yeah, but, right. But you were asking yourself that. And then I think you were also around that time beginning to experience some discomfort with some of the religiosity of AA. And I was wondering if you might want to talk about that a little bit about, you know, what, what happened? What went on there? What was your answer? Why do you still go to AA? And, and how did that whole discomfort with the religi- religious nature of AA, you know, how did that, manifest yeah yeah well it's yeah it's been a really interesting process because i've really experienced like a renaissance in my i guess both in my recovery in my life in general and in my relationship with aa and yeah i did start i guess for years i've gone to meetings and said things like you know well the idea of a personal god has never worked for me which is true, and I've tried. I've tried to make it work in a variety of ways, and it just it just didn't stick. I also would say things like, you know, I consider my spiritual experience to be about my relationship with the world, with everything in the world, you know, people and stuff and the whole, you know, all of it. But I did start experiencing more discomfort, and i i would I would find groups that were you know accepting of that and my the home group that i was part of at the time was uh pretty good but you know a whole variety of experiences but i do remember being in that being in a meeting one time where somebody was talking about the four step and they were reading some stuff out of the big book and i you know they're reading i'm going Oh, I forgot that that was in there. That's actually pretty. That's actually pretty good. You know, it's talking. It was talking about you know our stuff and our you know our self-centeredness and all the stuff. I'm going, yeah, you know, okay, I can relate to it. And then in the next paragraph, it was sort of like, and then, 
God, <laughs> you know, and all these, you know, capital letter words, right. you know, about, and it's like, and I'm just sitting in the meeting going, no, 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 no. You just should have stopped reading right before that. And it's like, no, it doesn't follow. I mean, you know, Bill, you know, bless his heart. He, he was, he was a salesman. Yeah, yeah. I think he, I think he thought of himself as a philosopher and wanted to be a philosopher, but he was a salesman and you know, that's okay. Cause I think to get something started, like what, you know, we have here took that, but it, you know, that didn't follow. So, that was I was sort of like going okay well and I when I when I shared that night I just gently said you know that is not that's the first part is totally my experience I relate to it mm-hmm. the second part eh, not so much yeah but then I think it was not long after that meeting there was another meeting same same group another Sunday evening and there was a young woman there who was. You know, she introduced, she was new to the meeting. It was one of her first AA meetings. And she introduced herself and she said just out front, I'm an atheist and I don't know that AA is going to, I don't think AA is going to work for me, but I'm here and I've got a sponsor here. She's here with me. Um, her, spo- her sponsor was, you know, I should say a secular AA person mm-hmm. as well. But anyway, she was just she just openly introduced herself by that, and I think she did share a bit about her some of her experience there. And I shared, I guess, in my way, where again I said, "Hey, I I'm somebody who you know, the idea of this whole God thing and personal God and all this has never worked, and I've been sober a long time." <laughs> and interestingly, there was another guy there who was also very new, who hadn't said anything, but he was an atheist too and i got to meet him and spent some time serving as a i guess as a sponsor to him uh he now lives uh in olympia he's a little ways away so i don't see him regularly anymore but he's still sober Uh, but but it was like yeah okay this you know there's something missing to me and i would like to find more like-minded people and Somewhere in there, I also started listening to your podcast, and I remember listening to you, you and Ben doing the steps, and those are those are just great podcasts, uh, that whole series. But there were just a whole bunch of them that I really enjoyed, and one of them you you interviewed Willow, yeah, who's here in Seattle, and I was going, oh well, that's kind of cool. She got sober when she was fifteen. Okay, she's young. I can relate to that and then she talked about moving to seattle and sort of my ears up and she talked about a meeting uh, or a couple of meetings in the seattle area here that were relatively new that i hadn't heard of called many paths many paths meetings and so it's like well i gotta go to these meetings so i so i did and it was really like a breath of fresh air i mean to go to a meeting uh, the first one i went to i remember just sitting there i'm going Okay, well, they didn't read how it works. Yeah, you know that's great. Uh, just it was just like a checklist. I sort of went through this mental checklist of things I would want to have in a meeting and not want to have, and it was like it hit most of the boxes. I'm going, this is this is really nice. So I started attending that meeting regularly, 
and had the idea why well, it's uh, those meetings are a little south of uh, Seattle, and I thought, well, we we need one of these right in the middle of Seattle. Mm-hmm. So about a year ago, I started a meeting, uh, also called Many Paths. Uh-huh. And we meet at 5 o'clock on Sundays now in a place called the Recovery Cafe, which is oh. right uh, just right on the edge of downtown Seattle. Oh, neat. And how's that meeting going? Well, it's it's going okay. We actually, when we first started it, we were in a neighborhood called Capitol Hill, which is pretty, pretty vibrant. A lot of younger people there, but all, people of like all ages and all stripes, all all sorts of gender identities and every kind of mix of stuff it's it's a very interesting place so started that in a in a coffee shop and it was kind of important to me to not be in a church i know some people you know that that's an easy place churches are welcoming um usually and the rent's usually reasonable and all that so they're good places but i wanted to just kind of not have that so i found this coffee shop with a meeting room and we basically outgrew that space. And so we moved to the recovery cafe at the beginning of the year and moving a meeting is hard. Yeah. And so it's, it's now starting to build back up and, but it's, it's a good little meeting Mm -hmm. and there are people that come there that just say, you know, I just like the feel. And I, I, I started also to be really openly open. You know, I really, don't care what you believe or don't believe yeah. because I, I think I don't want, I don't want to do to other people what some and some people in AA do to me, uh, you know, to say, you know, you, you, you have to, yeah, it is. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. As you well, said. I really and, liked how you did, in Seattle, what you did in Salt Lake City, you know, when, when, when you weren't real comfortable with what was going on with your AA world, you just kind of created your own community, you know, and that's really, really neat experience to have. I, I, I got to experience that here in Kansas City when I um, helped start our We Agnostics group. And all of a sudden, you know, my, my whole AA world shifts from, my big book loving thumping book group to this, yeah. to this other totally free um, experience and it's just really nice to be able to have the ability to do that well i think it's it's one of the things you know we think about well what can we do and how and the the fourth tradition really is you know gives us this freedom to do that i mean i've even thought well, I, I should start another meeting now called you know you know, I hate AA or something <laughs> like that, you know? Yeah, you uh, and there's that quote of the bill says, you know, you can get, get, you get a few people together and you, even if you're, you know, anti <laughs> everything, right. including anti AA, you welcome. can still call yourself <laughs> an, an AA, AA group. group. That's right. Absolutely. I think that's hilarious, but it's, so it's true. And, and it's neat that, that we can do that. I'm um, speaking about AA and traditions and stuff like that. One final thing I wanted to talk about, um, you were mentioning the um, importance of how we carry our message, how we communicate the message. And, and you were kind of talking about, you know, when you go to the AA.org website on your cell phone, it's not really a great user experience. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. What are we doing wrong? What can we do differently? What should we do? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's, well, I think of like 
back in the 60s, Marshall McLuhan coined this term that the medium is the message. Mm. And I really think what he was saying is that the way you present something is just as important, if not more important, as what you're presenting. And I decided to go to AA.org on my iPhone a little while ago, and it was not a great experience. <laughs> it's hard to navigate. It's not, it's kind of set up, it does present itself differently on a mobile device than it does on a computer, but most of the content is still in PDF format. You know, it's it's built for print publication mm -hmm. only. So if you want to know more about things about AA, you end up having to look at PDF files mm -hmm. and they, you know, they first have to download onto the device and then some of them are formatted better than others and it just it wasn't that good an experience. And and one of the particular ones that was weird was that they have a things okay about problems other than alcohol and uh, it goes, it has this little caveat that, well, Bill wrote this in 1958, and we think it's just as pertinent today as it was then. <laughs> and, you know, when I see that, it's like, okay, that was, that was 60 <laughs> years ago. Okay. <laughs> and go in there and, and it's, you know, read this PDF. And actually they did, when I first looked at it, the, the way the PDF was formatted, it was like, it was all jumbled. It was formatted to be printed on a paper and then, you know, bound into a booklet. So the page, page orders would be right. So the, but the page, so the page writing was just all wrong. They did at least fix that uh, recently, but still it's this pamphlet. And most of it, what it talks about is like, who's a member, who can be a member. And, you know, I think if I'm coming to AA and I, you know, I have, problems with alcohol i guess probably because i'm that's why i'm there but i have problems with other stuff as well that's not probably not going to speak to me very well if i if i make it through and get to the pdf file right. uh, you know when it's say all right you know i what does it mean to be i don't care about being a member and i think you know just in general our society you know the idea of being a member of something you know back 60 years ago or whatever that was important was more important than it is today we you know we things are more fluid and boundaries are more fluid but just in terms of literature both the aa website and the grapevine website yeah. isn't great either no you're right and, i agree and, and there's the grapevine ha has some more flexibility i, I well mm -hmm. before i talk about that i think one of the one of the issues that AA has it's sort of like this albatross around our neck now. Is this is conference approved literature? Mm -hmm. um, we have this archaic, bizarre process for going through all of this. And well, I just I like a while ago, maybe nine months ago, I went to our local intergroup to get some pamphlets for the meeting. I started. So I thought, well, I you know I should have some pamphlets around. <laughs> and so I just. Went in and I grabbed a selection of things, you know, that included, you know, various things, young people, you know, women, other, you know, just mm -hmm. a selection of maybe half a dozen pamphlets. And I get home and I, I show them to my wife and she picks up AA for the woman. 
and starts reading it, and it's it was written over thirty years ago, yeah. and hadn't been updated. Uh-oh. Now I think they are updating that one, or yeah. they have recently updated that one. But but of these pamphlets I picked, the the at the time the newest one was AA for young people, and it was ten years old. You know, I mean that's. The iPhone came out in 20, 2007, so just over 10 years ago. So, mm-hmm. you know, when that, that has really changed the way we relate to stuff, to information, and uh, maybe I'm repeating myself here, but that is it because, but, but, but conference approved literature, it's, it's very, it's very difficult to get something new. And, yeah. It takes years to go through the process, and I know there are some people talking about this idea of bringing this Godward pamphlet uh-huh. from Britain over here, which which they approved. I don't know, it's better, but it's still the pamphlet's got a weird name. Oh, the Godward. Mm-hmm. You know, the Godward. It's like if I'm somebody, you know, who's looking at AA, and I don't believe I'm. I'm not going to know what that means. Right. Um, and. And I, I've really I, read pamphlets anyway. Yeah, people don't read pamphlets. <laughs> um, you know, they need it to be, you know, you know, a f- interactive Facebook thing right, or something right. like that. Well, you know, we've been really bad. Yeah. When I say we, I say AA we, but we're just really slow with technology. I mean, it frustrates me that the Grapevine site is so bad, really. And I hate to say that because I love, I love the people that work at the Grapevine. Yeah, well, I think I think you know, in some ways, they have, you know, they have the freedom to print. Yeah, stuff they can. That, they do, and they do. And they they they, they have do, more you know, updated like, stuff. Yeah, like the the atheist was October 2016. The atheist yeah. one they had, you know, that that was great. I picked that uh-huh. up and I read through that was it. A good issue. Oh, yeah, it was a great issue. And they're going to publish a whole book about um, atheist yeah. this year. So yeah, they can do stuff like that. But their website design is a mess. Yeah, um, it's better and it's, on the mobile phone actually than on on a desktop, but still, it's a bit of a mess. Yeah, yeah. I still would, you know, I was I was just looking at it the other day and had a few things. Yeah, I'd bring up an article and it wouldn't be laid out quite right on mm-hmm. my screen, so I'd have to do you know mess around with it to get it so that I could I didn't have to scroll sideways and things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things like that. But those things do speak louder than you might think. Yeah. You know. I think and, you can have more and, free content too, and I was telling her uh, that. That was, that was my thing too. It's like everything's behind a paywall. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I'm, you know, I mean, I understand there's this problem of, you know, how is it supported? Right. And, but, but they are supported uh, through their subscriptions, and that's their mandate. They can't, they can't take like donations or anything. It has to be self-supporting through subscriptions. But their website, they should be using the website, in my opinion. And I'm not a guy who's in marketing or anything. But I think the website should be drawing people into wanting to subscribe, and you need to give them some free content, more free content, and more interaction. Sure. With you know, make make it more of a community on that on that site, so that yeah. people would, would would want to, you know, get get more involved with it. Because it is right now, it's not really you know accessible it's, for anyone. Yeah, it's really and yeah, it's really still you know the 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 print publication model yeah. is and it's. But you know yeah. they're pretty forward thinking. Yeah. The the executive editor publisher she actually went to the general service conference a few years ago and she was asking them to use their imagination and she said imagine if we had our own YouTube channel imagine if we had a podcast you know and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But I don't know. 
<laughs> they will. Well, I, I I hope. You know, I think looking at sometimes looking at things in the history of AA, sometimes you know there have been times where things have changed more rapidly. Maybe we'll get to a point where people start thinking, yeah. oh, we. We can do a lot better, and we can reach more people. It does concern me. I, you know, there are attendance st- statistics, which are really difficult to compile in an organization that's anonymous. But I remember early in sobriety, it seemed like the in my sobriety that the size of AA was like doubling every five years or mm-hmm. something. And then somewhere in the mid '90s, it just kind of stopped it got up to a two to two and a half million and that's where we're sitting and now we're maybe seeing some decline though i don't know that it's given the way the data is collected it may not be statistically significant but that that growth that used to happen is not happening and people there are lots of alternatives and yeah. people have access to that information in ways that they just never had i don't know i don't know the answer but uh I hope we can keep talking more and more about the questions. Yeah, I, I do too. And, and and another nice thing about it, though, is that, you know, we can have our AA Beyond Belief. We can have AA Agnostica, stuff like that. And, you know, the grapevine knows about AA Beyond Belief, and they're they're fine with what we do. And, I mean, so we just we, – we can do our own thing too. But um, yeah. I don't know. I might interact with that grapevine a little bit more and see if I can – give them some ideas um, yeah yeah <laughs> but like i say i'm no expert either but um but right. gosh darn anyway so thank you it's been such a pleasure to speak with you i love doing these podcasts it's just like having a chat with a friend <laughs> yeah yeah well i've really enjoyed uh our time together here too and uh i love so Minneapolis, thank- by the way what a great city yeah yeah it's uh it is fun i've been because my father's health isn't so good, I've been traveling there frequently, and yeah. it's yeah, it's nice. Yeah, my wife and I went up there for a vacation once. Yeah, in, in the Midwest, you go to these fun places: Omaha, right. Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's well, yeah. Anyway. It's it is it's a good city, and I I I guess the part I don't miss is the climate, but yeah, uh, but there's a lot that I do miss. So. Well, again, thank you. It's been it's been a pleasure. And that concludes another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Thank you for listening, everybody.